As we begin our journey through the book of Isaiah, we are in Isaiah chapter 1 this morning. If you are using the Bible in the pew rack in front of you, that is on page 566. Page 566. We're trying this new experiment where at the close of the reading of God's word, I'll say, this is God's word. And those who feel this way can say, thanks be to God. But not just kind of say it because it's like the rote thing to do, but because we're overjoyed that we get to hear God's word. So you can shout it, thanks be to God, and we'll see how it goes over the next uh, month or so. But would you stand for the reading of God's word, Isaiah chapter 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, In the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for Yahweh has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they've rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They've forsaken Yahweh. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If Yahweh of hosts had not left us a few survivors... We should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of Yahweh, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says Yahweh. I've had enough of burnt offerings, rams, and the fat of well-fed beasts, I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. 
When you spread out your hands, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says Yahweh. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of Yahweh is spoken. How the faithful city has become a whore, she who is full of justice. Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore the Lord declares, Yahweh of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes, and I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake Yahweh shall be consumed for they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired and you shall blush for the gardens that you've chosen for you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tinder and his work a spark and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated as we pray. Father, we together ask that you would use your word as you intended. The very things the Holy Spirit wants accomplished through this passage, we pray that your, that same spirit would work in our hearts and cause us to hear and understand. Shape us. We need to be shaped by your word. In Christ's name, amen. X-ray scenarios. You're probably not familiar with the term because I made it up, but I think you're familiar, most of you be familiar with the concept. An X-ray scenario, a situation you go through that 
examines what's going on in a deeper part of you. Moves past the facade to who you really are. A situation that when you're in it, you find out who you are at your core. There's several different kinds of x-ray scenarios. One of them is when we realize we don't have control over a situation that matters to us. Another one is when we don't get what we want. Another one is when we are given power over people or an individual. X-ray scenarios. There's one particular one that I want us to be thinking about this morning. And that is how we respond when confronted with sin. How we respond when confronted with sin. Because that is what the prophet Isaiah inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, is doing this morning in this chapter. Confronting sin. How we respond is telling about who we are. Now this chapter is grouped around three main speeches of God. So Yahweh, which by the way, when you see L-O-R-D in all caps in the Old Testament, that's Yahweh, which is why I say Yahweh when I get there. But, but Yahweh speaks at three different times in our passage. And then following Yahweh's words, the prophet Isaiah kind of comes home as the preacher and hammers home a few different things, usually by way of illustration. So the sermon is going to move through those three main sections where Yahweh speaks and then the prophet after him. So the first will run from verse 2 to verse 10, and then verse 11 to 23, and then verses 24 to the end. Now, let's look at Yahweh's first words. Now, I said it begins at verse 2. Verse 1 kind of gives the situation into which Isaiah prophesied. I talked about that last week. I pray didn't emphasize how he's prophesying particularly to Judah and Jerusalem, that is the southern kingdoms of Israel during this time, but uh, hopefully you got a good sense of what was going on during the reigns of those kings and what was happening during Isaiah's prophecy. But Yahweh's words in verses 3 and 4 begin with a summons. Now, if the premier of Ontario had something very important to say, he would summons all the citizens of Ontario to hear. If the Prime Minister of Canada had something critical for us to hear, he would summons all the people from coast to coast to coast. All of Canada to hear his words. So when the creator God speaks, it is the heavens and the earth that are summoned to hear his words. 
And so we know at the very outset, this is not intended to be a private prophecy just between Israel's prophet and Israel. The God whose heart, as we saw when we were in Genesis, whose heart is for all the nations, for the whole world to know him, and he's chosen this nation to be the conduit of blessing to the world, is now speaking to this nation that he's chosen for that, but it's a message that he wants the whole world to hear. And what does he say? The end of verse 2. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. I don't know... um, Not everyone in the room is a parent. I think everyone in the room is a child. I don't know if you've ever experienced that kind of real estrangement, parent-child distance. Probably most of us at some level, somewhere on the scale, have experienced that. When it slides a certain direction on the scale, it can be one of the most heartbreaking experiences known to humans. I've sat in nursing homes with people who are still broken over decades-long distance with one of their children. It's not like you can just have another kid and replace that. It's just... It's heartbreak. Yahweh's not here saying, okay, I, I, I'm just going to have a court case and I'm going to kind of lay out, here are the facts. These are the things that Israel's done. You need to know there's a reason I brought the enemy and there's a reason I'm, they've done bad things and you need to know about that. There's a pathos here. Right? Out of the gate, what is Yahweh saying? Children, have I reared and brought up They've rebelled against me. And you can say so much about what the essence of Christianity is. I say Christianity, if you want to be able to expand it back to the Old Testament, true, the true religion of Yahweh. The essence of that is a relationship of a child with a father. A whole, restored, vibrant, life-giving relationship. That's, That's the crux of the issue. For all you can say throughout Isaiah, the opening for you, the opening thing that said, the relationship that I long for, that I've created you for, is in shambles. Now there is a unique sense in which Israel proper was the son of God, his child. But it's true in a unique way that is pent-ultimate. Ultimately, finding its fulfillment in Christ, who would create a way for all people who are in him 
to be children of God. So 1 John 3 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Beloved, we're now God's children. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That, that is the crux. The great Canadian theologian J.I. Packer summarized the whole message of the Bible and the gospel like this. It's three words. Adoption through propitiation. Adoption through propitiation. The word propitiation just means, hey, we were rebels. We deserved punishment. Jesus came on the cross bore the punishment we deserve so that we can be reconciled. That's, that's what that word propitiation was. So through Jesus' atoning work on the cross, what? Adoption. That is, at its core, what Christianity is about. As God goes on in verse 3, he reiterates, it's, it, nature itself is teaching us this is wrong. You look at the ox. The ox knows its owner. So does the donkey, its master. Do we know God? Is our master? Yes, but no. Do we know him as our owner, yes, but no. Ultimately, do we know him as father? When you think of the essence of your walk with God, what you call yourself a Christian, when I think of the essence of that, what do I think of? I'm a child of God. And whatever's gone in Israel, whatever's happening, that has been severed. That relationship is in shambles because the children have rejected the loving, good care of their father and rebelled against him. And so in verses 4 to 10, the prophet speaks. He, he takes Yahweh's words and kind of applies them with force, and he does so through three illustrations. But first, he just kind of begins out of the gate in verse 4, in calling on them, or calling out, you are, you are sinful people. You've gone against the Holy One of Israel. Now, in order to understand, really, how these words would have been received, you need to understand that Israel did not think that they were rebelling against God. They thought they were good. When they showed up, they had their, I'm good, I'm a good follower of Yahweh pin on, and they were feeling real nice about themselves. This would have been a shock for them to hear. Now, we see that much more clearly when Yahweh speaks next, and starting in verse 11 through verse 17. But we need to know that now, 
to be able to hear how Israel's words would have been received, even Yahweh's words. You're actually a sinful nation. And then three illustrations to drive that home. The first relating to human health. You know, the husband, I'm fine, dear. <coughs> I'm fine. It's just a little cough. All I need is a good night of sleep and my glass of orange juice in the morning and I'll be fine. And the wife knows he is sick. The sickness is throughout. His head's not right. Disease is in his heart. He's got sores all over him. Some of them festering sores. But because he's saying, I'm fine, I'm fine. I'll be all right. It's not even getting treated. The wounds aren't even getting dressed. That's what Isaiah says we're like. We think we're healthy. And the whole body is sick. Then, in verse 7, he points out that, look, your, your land's getting conquered, right? Which... If you read Leviticus 26, when Yahweh is telling his people, like, if you ever rebel against me, here's what I'm going to do to try and get your attention and bring you back. And when it starts getting real bad, he allows foreign armies to come in. So Isaiah's like, you see the foreign armies, right? Okay, now illustration number two, and this time he uses it a, a structural illustration. I don't know if there's a lot of gardeners here. You know you're a serious gardener when you spend a lot of time thinking about how to keep critters from destroying your plants. If I just put this kind of gum in the uh, mulch around it, this kind of fence, spray this on the leaves. The squirrels can get in there, the rabbits can get in there, depending where you live, deer can get in there, raccoons. How do we keep them out? This is not a new problem for gardeners. Back in the day, you had your cucumber field or your vineyard, and you needed to keep the critters out when, once, once there was fruit for them to be able to have. And so you'd station a guard there. That's how important it was. We're going we're to put someone there. If you see the rabbit, get them out of there. If you see a fox, get them out. But of course, if you're going to be sitting there all summer and all night long, what are you going to need? A little bit of shelter. So you'd get some branches and some different leafy things, and you'd weave together a little shelter for yourself to keep the hot sun off of you and maybe to protect you from the elements at night. It was pretty much the most temporary shelter you could have. And Israel's like, we're this mighty, strong nation. If, if I were to liken myself spiritually to, a, to a, a structure, it'd be a castle, thick walls. It's like, no. You're the lodge in the cucumber field. That's what you are. You're, you're the little, little temporary structure in the vineyard. 
your besieged city. The third illustration he gets, he, he gives a biblical illustration. He says, you're Sodom and Gomorrah. Save for God's merciful heart toward you, you'd be no better than Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 9. The first city that was so rebellious against God that he had to actually rain fire and sulfur down to destroy it. You know, it's easy for us to look out on the pagan world and kind of cluck our tongues, shake our heads at just how backwards and rebellious and godless it is. They who don't know what Yahweh has said they who don't have the scriptures, who don't know the gospel, rebelling against God, what about us who have the covenants, who have the scriptures, who know a taste of adoption? When we reject God's word, say, I'll go my own way, which is worse? And so the prophet in verse 10 says, Sodom and Gomorrah, he talks about God's people that way. Hear, hear, hear God's word. Will we hear? Will we hear God's word? Nope, I'm healthy, I'm fine, I'm a castle. Not one of those pagans over there. I got my I'm good button on. Hear, hear God's word. And that segues then into the next section of our passage. Which really runs from 11 all the way to verse 23. Most of it is God's words. It's just the last three where the prophet brings it home. And if Yahweh's first words were kind of saying that the general crux of the issue, children have rebelled against me, now he gets a lot more specific. And here's where it really starts to take shape. These people, Yahweh makes clear, are doing all sorts of things that the scriptures have said they should do. They're following scriptural habits and patterns in their worship. So, sacrificial system, following that well. In fact, I'm bringing well-fed animals, not just the worst, but the well-fed animals. All the holy days, keeping everyone on the convocations, the new moons, the Sabbaths, the feasts. We'll learn later on the, the fasts. I mean, I'm going to church. I'm there Sunday morning. I go to the mini seminary. I'm at the prayer meeting at night. 
This is not just Christmas and Easter crowd. They also are people of prayer. They're praying. He says many prayers. You you might be offering up many prayers. And yet these very acts, God says, are a burden to him. He says my soul hates them. Why? This is a really important question. Why? Part of it's answered in verses 15 through 17. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make them clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. In other words, if you look at those phrases and you just kind of do an Old Testament study of those phrases over and over again, when God is trying to show what his heart is like, he uses those kind of things. I care for the sojourner. I care for the widow. I care for the, for the fatherless. I am a God of justice. I don't like it when scales are not balanced. This is God's heart. And what's happened is that the people are going through all the kind of scriptural patterns, and yet their hearts themselves are not reflecting the heart of their, verses 2 to 3, their father. So I want to speak about facade Christianity, facade true religion. And I want to link together verses 2 and 3, verse 10 with its call to hear the word of God, which will be echoed throughout Isaiah. You're not listening to God's word. You're not listening to God's word. And then verses uh, 16 and 17. And I want to give a definition right now then based on that of facade Christianity. Facade Christianity is a Christianity that is not focused on our relationship with our Father. Mediated through the word of God. Such that we reflect our father. It's not focused on our relationship with our father. Mediated through the word of God. Such that we reflect our father. Reflect the character of our father. Do you see what I'm saying? When I say mediated through the word, I'm just saying it's not just your own made-up view. Oh, I have a relationship with God, and he's like this. I had a dream, and he was like this. No, from the word of God, from the Bible, 
who's, who's this God you're in relationship with? That's what I mean by mediated through the word of God. Hear the word of the Lord, right? Jesus didn't die so that you could be a Christian. Jesus didn't die so you could be a member of Maple Avenue Baptist Church. Jesus died so that sinners like us could be reconciled to our Father. That's why he died. That's the crux. Now, don't misunderstand Isaiah the prophet here. He's not saying, hey, even though God said sacrifices are important, don't do them. Oh, God said to keep a Sabbath, but that doesn't really matter. No, those are good things to do. If you're a child of God, you're going to want to obey him. It's not, well, choose to emphasize relationship and don't do all that ritual stuff. No, if God's commanded it, we do it. It all goes together. The problem is when they become disconnected from one another, right? I'm going to go through all the ritual and think I'm okay when the crux of the matter has been lost. I've lost sight of the relationship with my Heavenly Father. Once we have that, we want to obey God and reflect him better and better. understanding facade Christianity is really important today because if you look out on the scene in the West, Western Christianity, there are all sorts of facade Christianities that are trying to get into our hearts because Christianity is a very useful tool There are those who want to co-opt it, to use it to an ends. Often that ends is political power. Sometimes it's monetary gain. So they claim, hey, God wants this, but they actually don't really care what the Heavenly Father wants. They're just invoking his name to be able to get the masses to come and follow what they're saying needs to be done. And we need to be on guard. It's it's on the political right and it's on the political left. Wherever you find yourself, this kind of stuff is being done. Invoking Christianity, invoking the God of the Bible to their own ends, to accomplish what they want to accomplish, detached from our relationship with our Father, where we're saying, what do you want? And wrestling with the Word to understand that. I don't want you to hear this. If you're someone who leans more right, I don't want you to be like, yeah, there are a lot of people on the left doing that. I'm glad I don't. And if you're more center or left or wherever you want to call yourself and you look at some of the extremes on the right, yeah, yeah, good, I'm glad the pastor's calling that out. No, I'm calling us to examine our own hearts. The prophet wasn't pointing out there at Sodom, he was pointing here at us. Where is it, where are we drifting to where we can start to feel that way, where that kind of facade Christianity can start to grip our hearts? We've got to put it away. 
But Yahweh's speech isn't done because, hear this, when God exposes sin, he does it so that we'll repent and run to him for restoration. That's why he does it. And you see that right here, right after calling out the sin in verses 16 to 17, verse 18, come, let us reason together, says Yahweh, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're red as crimson, they shall become like wool. You know, this side of the cross, this verse makes a whole lot of sense. But back then, this would have been really mysterious. And Isaiah likes building that mystery, and he's going to develop it further, especially in Isaiah 53. But, but God, is, God is exposing sin not because he wants to kind of pop people on the head. You ninnies, you numbskulls, what kind of idiots are you? I'm done with you. No. God's heart is to restore. He wants to take the crimson red, make it white. He wants to make us whole and clean. Wants well, just to be restored to relationship with him. That's why he's exposing sin. That's why he allowed the foreigner to come in. Maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Christ. The offer of the gospel. It's not, hey, I gotta pretend like I'm a good person. And no, the offer of the gospel is your sin is red. And God through Christ, through propitiation, can make you clean. And God's saying, come, let's reason together. Hear me, I'm inviting you. White as snow, white like wool. That's his offer. But of course, it's for those who repent. Those who are willing to say, I'm not going to keep holding on to my sin. Repentance isn't perfection. It's not like, I'll never do it again. No, it's repentance is what am I holding on to? Am I clinging to my sin or do I let go of that turn and cling to God? That's my hope. That's what repentance is. I got, I got to cleanse my hands of this stuff. I say, that's not what I'm giving myself to anymore. That's not where my heart is. You do that, you get to eat the bounty that comes at being at the Father's table. You don't. Instead, you're eaten by the sword. Verse 22. Sorry, I said verse 22. I meant verse 20. So then... The prophet Isaiah, again, takes this message and drives it home. Again, with three illustrations. The first one, this faithful city compares it to a harlot, a whore. Murderers. The second 
your fine silverware. It's become so corrupted. It's, it's just dross. It's basically worthless. And the third, we're a, we're a good, well-aged wine. Yeah, mixed with water. It's, it's not good for anything. I know we're all so glad it's just an Old Testament you know, this is, this is God in the Old Testament laying into his people before Jesus. <laughs> Except for that Jesus in Matthew 7 not, says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in his heaven, who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. But the facade has to crumble. We hold on to our facade. It will be exposed on the last day. It's not just an Old Testament truth. It's not just Isaiah 1. It's Matthew 7. It's there in Revelation as well, letters to the churches. Again, why, why does Yahweh expose sin? His next speech picks up where he left off and makes clear. This is the third and final speech. Third and final section runs from verse 24 to 31. Therefore, the Lord declares, Yahweh of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. That is, the enemies that have come into your land who are treating you badly, I'm going to deal with them. But he says, I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. You see his purposes in exposing the sin? He wants to take the whore and make her the faithful city again. Not just wants to, he is going to. He's going to take the cruddy silverware and get rid of the dross. He's going to take our crimson-stained sin, sin-stained souls and make them white as snow. A lie is going to work. Cleaning agent. He brings judgment. And yes, we'll see the judgment is against foreign nations. It's against Israel itself. Isaiah's going to talk all about that. But there's a purpose in doing all of this, in exposing the sin, even in bringing the judgment. He is doing something and he's refining it and making us new. That is what our God does. God exposes sin so that we'll run to him and find redemption. And that means when the x-ray scenario of us being confronted in our sin, 
occurs. As Christians, we don't have to become defensive. We don't have to try and dodge it. But you weren't quite precise enough on this point. I'm not sure your heart was coming from quite the right motive. Oh, you're a hypocrite because I see that you do that too. No. Christians are like, yep, I'm worse than I think I am. Worse than you think I am. God is using this x-ray scenario to drive me to him so that he can forgive me and refine me and make me more like my father so I reflect his character better and better. That's how the gospel works. And that's exactly what the, the prophet then picks up on. He's like, okay, that's how the gospel works, so it's so important that you be people who repent. So the, the prophet Isaiah's words are 27 to 31. Listen, just listen how he starts. Verse 27. Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness. Redemption. Being bought back. There's another one of those clues. Redeemed. Well, God's going to redeem. He's going to make white. He's, how's all this going to work? Of course, this side of the cross, it makes sense. But, but he's going to do it in a way that doesn't violate his justice and his righteousness. God will remain a holy, just, righteous God even while he redeems sinners like us. What kind of sinners? Well, the sinners that don't, that are described right after this, now, the ones that are described after this don't actually repent, but they're people who chase after the oaks and the gardens. Well, what are the oaks and the gardens? Isaiah 57, 5 says, of the sinful people of Israel, they burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree, slaughtering their children. These were likely cultic religious connections to, to the earth, rooted in fertility and strength. And Israel's like, I like that kind of stuff. That's fun. I'm going to go try that out. Oh, that, I mean, I'm a follower of Yahweh, but just doing a little bit like that might, might give me a little bit more, you know, hedge my bets a little bit or whatever they're doing. You know, paganism hasn't changed. burned with lust among the oaks, slaughtering our children. What matters? Pleasure, power, feeling that I'm righteous while pursuing pleasure and power. It's paganism. And I love how Isaiah does this. He's like, okay, you don't repent? You're going to be like a dried out oak log a garden in drought, and also a spark. <sniffs> Don't repent, you go up in flame. Unquenchable flame. It's not a joke, guys. When we rebel, 
and we keep holding on to that rebellion, rebellion, the flame is coming. So what God wants is calling on us to turn, exposing our sins so that we'll hide them. But the prophet wants us to know you've got to repent because there's a flame coming. Now, this isn't a, a, a scare you into heaven thing that the prophet's doing. He, he just, he, he wants the facade gone. So we can have true relationship with our God. So the x-ray scenario has played itself out here. Now, I, I'm not saying all of us are as bad as all of Israel was at that time. But you know what? Even Israel at the time would have had a wide spectrum. You had people like Isaiah there. And what does Isaiah do in Isaiah 6 when he's confronted with the holiness of God? Woe is me because the people I live are really bad and I'm sorry about them, God. I'm glad I'm not like them. He says, woe is me for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. There is some level for every one of us where facade Christianity can uh, creep its way in. We need to be reminded of what true Christianity is. Prioritizing our relationship with our Father. Mediated through the Word. Such that we reflect His character. That's what Isaiah is calling us to see. How will we respond this morning as we hear what God has said? Will you join me in prayer? Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Amen.